Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I am absolutely delighted to be joined tonight by Arjun Murthy. He's an ex-partner at Goldman Sachs, where he spent 22 years as a sell and buy side energy equity research analyst. Uh, I actually discovered him via the Super Spiked newsletter, which I can strongly recommend you all read. Um, it's 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 great. We're going to get into a the weeds of a lot of the things he puts out in, in that newsletter and a lot more beyond. Arjun, welcome to the show. Thank you, Seb. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So for the benefit of the uninitiated, perhaps you could give us the sort of elevator pitch of your career in energy to date and it's, maybe explain also why you launched Super Spiked, the newsletter, and, and actually what's behind the name of the newsletter too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's it's actually somewhat frightening, but this March will be 30 years for me. I actually don't feel that old, but I guess I am, of covering the, the broad energy space. So my career has been entirely here in the U.S. in the New York area. As you mentioned, uh, the bulk of it was as a sell-side equity research analyst. So my job was to cover the major oils, independent producers, refiners. I did do my tour of clean energy names that date back to the 2000s era, a lot of biofuels and, and so forth. Uh, but my client base would have been the large institutional investors, predominantly in the U.S., but also around the world to help them make either buy-sell decisions on the sector, individual names, uh, or just in understanding and analyzing macro trends or what's going on. Career started in Denver at a small investment bank. I was on the buy side at J.P. Morgan for a number of years. And then for 15 years, I was at Goldman Sachs um, as their lead energy analyst. Um, again, North America focused. I did cover South America oversaw our global oils team. And then in my last three years at Goldman, um, I actually also helped co-run our America's equity research department. Uh, it was a job that uh, gave me a lot of uh, good learning experiences, but definitely not something I aspired to. So I actually uh, did uh, retire from Goldman in 2014. And for the last seven years, uh, I'm on the board of uh, ConocoPhillips, the US large independent producer. Uh, I'm an advisor at a private equity firm here in New York, and then I'm also an advisory board member at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. So uh, that's the bulk of my career. And I, th I think the question is, uh, why did I start Super Spiked, uh, which is a Substack blog that I started in November? And, you know, Seb, I, I mentioned to you uh, before we got started here how much I've enjoyed listening to your first several episodes on Colin and hearing your personal energy transition story. And I think there's some element of that that I went through as well. And so, you know, I'm, a, I'm an analyst by background. I, I'm not an advocate. I'm definitely not an activist. Um, my perspectives are American. I will gather that you, I, I presume, have more of a UK or European type audience. So I will apologize to everyone that I definitely come at this from an American's perspective. But as an analyst, your job was never to advocate, say, for the companies you cover. It was, gonna, it was to try to figure out um, who had a good strategy, who had a bad strategy, what do the macro trends look like, and not what do you wish could happen, not what do you want to happen, what do you actually think is going to happen. And as we've morphed into this era of energy transition, and as the world has recognized that we need to continue to have abundant, available, affordable energy, but with the important caveat of with less CO2, with less carbon emissions, I'm finding there's just a lot of misunderstanding. I, I, I don't wanna use the word misinformation, but there's a lot of, you're either all about climate and that's all that matters, 
or, and I'll use an American phrasing, you're in the drill baby drill camp. Or, you know, all we're going to do is focus on fossil fuels and grow, grow, grow. And I, I find that neither extreme fits how I look at the world, either in terms of what I think will happen, what could happen, what should happen. And what I do hope through Superspike is to just provide um, sort of how an analyst would look at this. Um, so I, I, I might want, uh, I might want crude oil to go away. As an example, if you think that's important to emissions going down, the question is, are we taking the steps for that to actually happen? And, and I know we'll get into it, but there's a lot of, again, in the American phrasing, virtue signaling that goes on. People saying, I want this or I wish for this. But do the policies actually match that? And do they incentivize that? And if they don't, and here's where my concern arises, is that we're setting up for a worst of all worlds type scenario where you take a number of steps that negatively impacts the supply side of energy supply without taking the corresponding steps to affect the demand side. And then you get into these sort of energy crisis type environments. And we can debate what Europe's going through. We can debate what is going on with crude oil prices now and what are the exact causes of these kind of things. But I think there is this mixture of the fundamentals that happen with companies, the types of public policy you have, the pressures, good and bad, from the activist communities around the world, and some of those may be climate-focused, some of them may be sustainably development-focused, and I do believe I have some unique insights into that. And so then just the last point is why the name Superspike. So probably my highest profile call at Goldman Sachs was the original Superspike thesis, that after 15 years of oil being 15 to $20 a barrel, we made the call, I made the call, my team made the call in 2004, that that era of easy non-OPEC supply was behind us and that we were just entering this period where China and emerging market demand growth was going to surprise to the upside irrespective of where crude oil prices went. And so there was this framework that dated back to the 70s that if oil gets too high, it hurts the economy. That, that's certainly true. But I think after, you know, at that point, 20 years of oil underperforming the economy we did some analysis that showed there was a lot of room for crude oil prices to go up uh, before you start hurting the economy. So we call that our super spike call. And I think there are elements of that that I see playing out today in energy transition. The energy transition is on track to be rocky, hence the name super spiked. Um, I actually don't think it has to be that way, but it is on, tr it is on track for a rockier transition period. And I guess that those are probably some of the things we're gonna we're gonna get to talk about. Yeah, wow, that's that's quite an intro, and there's a huge amount to unpack there. And uh, it, it's funny, like just listening to you talk about your motivations, I feel like you've almost articulated mine about starting energy flux and you know trying to kind of decipher or distinguish between like what's desirable and what's necessary in the transition and all of these tensions. That, and you find yourself in the middle, thinking, well, there's no no easy answers and it requires like more investigation um that i i think like uh, uh, there's so many so many kind of threads to explore here um uh, you, you you kind of mentioned this idea of um of, of of european policy perhaps affecting uh the supply side and getting into this kind of uh, uncorrelated supply demand movement situation that gives rise to energy crisis scenarios but you've also said in your newsletter that you know say what you want about policy like the real reason that 
you know, oil and gas stocks being so uninvestable is because they've been uh, almost like a kind of not-for-profit sector, which just blew my mind. Like, can you can you talk about the the numbers that that go into that? How how can the sector possibly have been not-for-profit? Yeah, let, I think that's a great place to start, Sad. And 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 maybe I'll focus right now on crude oil. Uh, which is global, and the U.S. shale industry, and which is obviously has a huge impact on on industry. W- w- one of the things that that I, I always find somewhat amusing, uh, and I mean this in a lighthearted kind of way, is when uh, let's just say a climate person says these fossil fuel guys they're just trying to protect their profits. As an investor person, I say there's been no profits. <laughs> they, this was a not-for-profit sector. The, return on capital employed from 2015 to 2019, before the pandemic. Let's forgive the shale producers of the pandemic downturn. 0% return on capital. If you take that number back to 2010, and by the way, between 2010 and 2014, oil prices were basically $100 a barrel. If you include that period, over the last decade, profitability was 4%. That is a terrible number. Um, as an investor in, in private Western oil companies, you're going to want at least double-digit returns on capital employed. This is a book accounting metric that we utilize for the sector. I, I don't know that's particularly relevant to dive into the minutia of it, other than to say, when you're generating zero to four percent returns, that is a bad, bad return. And, and so, when people talk about crude oil prices having rallied from let's just call it forty to fifty dollars a barrel to today on my screen, Brent is 86.50. And you hear a lot of talk of people saying, see, it's that ESG and energy transition movement. They've caused, uh, they've caused supply to dwindle up and we've had this huge spike in crude oil prices. I would, I would push back on that. Um, I think it's a prospective concern, but in terms of the reason why oil is 86.50 today, it is this issue of the traditional investor base, non-ESG investors, non-climate people, just regular traditional institutional investors saying, you guys stink. You didn't generate any profits over the last five years. The, the peak of the profitability cycle, and I talk about this in one of my earlier notes, was actually 2006. And Seb, you may, you may remember, I think it was at the start of your career, oil peaked in 2008, but profits peaked in 2006 when oil was $65 a barrel in 2008. Oil was on average for the full year, $100 a barrel, profitability actually fell. And then it fell continuously until 2020. And so investors have simply walked away from the sector. For most of my career, uh, energy as part of the S&P 500 was anywhere from 6 to 15, 1.5% of the S&P. And if you look at the FTSE or global indices, uh, the traditional energy space was a similarly very important component of these key market benchmarks today. After this huge rally we've had, energy is merely 3% of the S&P, up from a low of 2%. And so that has nothing to do with ESG investors or energy transition investors saying uh, you can't invest going forward. Now, there is a concern prospectively, but right now it states that poor profitability has driven disinvestment from the sector. I, I, I think as we look forward, there is the questions of what is the outlook for long term oil demand? While there's always been uncertainty around recessions, there's never really been a question that as long as populations are growing and economies are growing, oil demand will grow. And while I personally think due to various policy failures, especially when it comes to fuel economy, that oil demand is likely to continue to grow to 20 to 30, um, there certainly are um, uh, a reasonable debate 
as to whether demand could peak sooner or later than that. And so I think as we look forward, it's quite possible that CapEx gets held back for these climate or energy transition or ESG uncertainty. But certainly the rally we've had today, I would attribute entirely to the very poor profitability this sector uh, has experienced and traditional investors saying, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, that's that's kind of wild when you put it like that. It's um, But at the same time, you... Uh, uh, and kind of getting back to the the key headline of this show or this episode is that you know you you also make the case that ESG can be kind of good for the oil companies and oil stocks, um, and and that there are kind of different ways ESG can play out, well, both to the benefit of of companies in this space, and that that's kind of counterintuitive because obviously um, you know com- uh, oil and gas companies tend to score pretty low on environmental social and governance metrics so so how just just talk us through that yeah and again so again i'll preface all this by saying this is an american analyst perspective but i actually think esg as a concept it's not sector specific so i think in any sector you can have companies that score well and score poorly on esg metrics and frankly there are actually a number of companies us oil companies that actually do have good ESG scores, not as self-defined, but is defined by outside, um, you know, outside entities that rate these things. Um, I, I think the question you're more getting at is, in a world that is particularly concerned about uh, climate change, um, you know, how likely it is that e- that energy companies score well going forward, uh, especially if they don't transition their businesses. But I'm going to get back to to, to one critical point. I don't personally view ESG as an asset class per se. I think it's a philosophy on how you run your company. Um, And if you're trying to run your company to be a going concern over the long run, so not just some short-term thing where you're trying to exploit some trend or pick up some acreage or assets and then sell them to a higher bidder in a few years if you catch the cycle right, that may or may not correlate, and it it probably doesn't, uh, with ESG metrics per se. But if you're trying to be a going concern, and so look, look at the traditional oil business. Uh, what is currently known as ExxonMobil, it used to be Standard Oil of New Jersey and before that Standard Oil Company. And if you look at today's uh, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, which I think they've dropped the Royal and even the Dutch, so whatever they're calling themselves today, maybe just Shell. Uh, these were two of the largest, uh, most profitable companies at the industry's founding in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It is 120 years later, and these are still some of the largest, most profitable companies. That is absolutely remarkable. Uh, it's a testament to both those companies and their longevity over su- su- such a long period of time. I mean, we've gone through um, World War One, World War II, Vietnam War, Korean War, rise and, rise and fall of the Soviet Union. It, it was created, went through the Cold War, and then collapsed. And these companies are still the largest, most... So they, that is the definition of a going concern company. I would... I would challenge people to find other companies in other sectors that are likely to be viable, where you can have that degree of confidence 120 years from now. So look at today's technology leaders, how many of those will be dominant 120 years from now. Um, so so there's, it, that, is, that is ultimately all about governance. Um, it is about um, adapting to the environments uh, and, and such things. When you look at Shale 1.0, uh, the first version of Shale from 2015 to 2019, I mentioned it was a 0% return on capital. I, I would argue if you had applied ESG within these companies, the return would not have been so poor. 
So why were returns that bad? Most of the EMPs, uh, the EMP companies are the ones who do the bulk of the shale, the independent producers, exploration and production is what EMP stands for. They had a model where they were going to generate very high rates of returns on the wells they drilled. It was the well IRR model, as we called it. And they promised investors from drilling a shale well at $50 oil, five zero, we're going to generate 30, 50, 100% rates of return. Now, can you imagine that? From drilling wells, they said, we're going to generate 30, 50, 100%. What was the return they generated? Zero. <laughs> I mean, zero. Even in 2018, when oil was $65 a barrel, the return on capital was 8%. So they were talking about what's the return on drilling an individual well, 30, 50, 100%. At the corporate level, as an analyst, in tabulating these figures, the number was actually zero, or in the best year, 2018, when oil was $65 a barrel, not 50, you had an 8% return on capital, which is, which is simply not good enough. And I would argue that if they had taken a sustainable approach to shale and not simply focused on trying to maximize the performance of individual wells, profit, there's no way profitability would have been that poor. So what, what, you know, what's an example of that? What did they not do? In only focusing on the wells, there was not sufficient care and cost understanding and analysis and commitment put to infrastructure development. So, and I'm going to bring it back to the environment. Let's say one cared about limiting methane, which is a, what actually one of the most important contributions I think oil and gas companies can make to climate change, which is eliminating flaring, venting, and leaks. I'm just going to use this one example. If all you care about is drilling the well, which is what you're telling your investors, and I'm going to get this great IRR, internal rate of return, on these wells, you weren't thinking about, is the natural gas handling capacity going to be there? Is the pipeline takeaway capacity going to be there? What's the timing of the completion crew relative to the drilling crew? There's a whole number of infrastructure and related items that were simply ignored. Now, in the U.S., in shale, and this is different than the rest of the world, there, it's, a, it's a very disaggregated industry, right? So there's separate companies that do all these individual pieces. If you're offshore West Africa and there isn't this robust oil service and network of independent producers and all these, as, as a large company, Shell or Exxon or someone, they're going to do everything. They're going to take into account, I'm going to call it the full cycle economics. The Shale EMPs did not take into account full cycle economics. So if there had been either a mandate, either self-imposed ideally um, by your industry trade group as the second choice, and then the third choice, which is a distant third to have a government regulation, um, to care about methane, to say, I do not want to flare. I do not want to vent gas unless it's an emergency situation. You would have had a more reasonable pace of, the, of drilling. The, it, it, to, to make this very long story short, they essentially overdrilled and ruined their profitability, and you ended up with a suboptimal result for the environment as well. We had more flaring, we had more venting than we needed to have. But even if you didn't care about methane, even if you didn't care about flaring and venting, when the takeaway capacity was not there, these companies drilled but didn't complete the well. What is the rate of return on a well where you drilled it but didn't actually big it onto production? You're, You've significantly delayed the timing by which you get your revenue base. There is nothing sustainable about that. Uh, and, and I think that approach, which was taken by the sector, it, it's, it's um, 
we don't need to get into moral judgments about black eyes and this kind of stuff. Just as an investor, as an equity research analyst, which is what I am, you got nothing. You got 0% return on capital. So, for, so I think going forward, as more of these companies have recognized they overspent, it's not just simply about capital discipline. It is about caring about full cycle development, about having the takeaway capacity, of ha having the natural gas takeaway capacity. If you promise to reduce flaring, if you promise to eliminate venting, uh, again, beyond emergency situations, you're going to have a more sustainable company that then takes into account all the costs, not just the drilling costs. And I, are, I, will, um, I will strongly argue that you will have a significantly more profitable industry. So to me, the profitability of the shale company is very positively correlated with how strong they are on ESG. I think another metric in ESG is this: is the social. It doesn't get as much attention. But do you have diverse viewpoints in an oil company? I think if everyone is from one part of the country, and I'm going to, again, focus on the U.S. shale industry here. If everybody's from the middle of the country, if they're all engineers, um, there, isn't, there is not tremendous gender diversity, though I don't know if that would have made a difference or not. Um, but without the difference in viewpoints, where was the pushback? Where was the discussion undebated? Hey, we're promising investors 30, 50, 100% rates of return, yet somehow our debt keeps going up, yet somehow we keep having to issue equity and our, and our book returns on capital are zero. And even at $65 oil, they're 8%. These are wholly inadequate numbers. Where was the discussion, dialogue, and debate? And so I think there's a lot of room for improvement on ESG. Um, now, if someone only cares about climate, they're, you know, if that's the only focus in life, then they're not going to care for these traditional companies. But if, I think as we're already starting to see, I, it, it seems true in Europe, but I'm not a European. Um, we've seen elements in California is people will always pick having available, affordable, secure energy over everything else. There certainly is a contingent of people who say, I only care about climate, but I would say humanity, broadly speaking, cares about energy first. And I'll say that you'll never solve climate without first solving for energy affordability, availability, and security. And with fossil fuels currently 83% of our primary mix, no matter how fast you transition, and I think it's going to take many, many, many decades. I think 2050 is optimistic, but we will see. We shall see. You're going to need these companies to be profitable first and foremost, and to actually build in the key elements of ESG to be better companies going forward and to still care about eliminating methane flaring venting leaks as their number one contribution to the climate, but ensuring that, uh, you know, the, the 7 billion people going to 9 billion people on earth for however long we're still using fossil fuels gets access to that. I think it's, I think it's a critical ESG component for these oil and gas companies. Okay, yeah, well, there's a lot in that, but let, let's just rewind, go back to the, the, the methane issue because that's, I, I think you're, you're right to identify that as being like a really low-hanging fruit uh, in the kind of portfolio of emissions reductions possibilities for, uh, for the shale sector and oil, oil and gas companies internationally. Um, but the thing about the shale sector is that it always said that, it would argued against common sense methane regulations said these add costs these duplicate what's already being regulated for um and and and, and there was this kind of pushback on, on the argument of cost was so would you kind of assign that to short-term thinking and that you just need to shift your thinking into a longer-term perspective about the costs accrued with with not regulating for this 
I think a lot has changed over the last, um, let's just call it five to seven years that has made both the technology to address methane and the cost understanding of it very different than what was the case. And I'll just go back to like the 2014 era when, uh, again, I'll, I'll focus here on the U.S. And, and the shale companies when President Obama at the time put in some EPA mandated regulations. I think I, I believe there's consensus from sort of not just oil companies, but um, you know some of the environmental folks that perhaps those regulations, as they were written at that time, were maybe heavy-handed um, and maybe uh, were going to result in quite an exorbitant cost for probably not very much methane reduction benefit. Uh, so I think those were not ideal regulations based on my understanding of them. But what they did do, and I think it was important that they actually got enacted, it forced companies to actually do the work on this stuff, which which perhaps they didn't do up till that point in time, but they've been forced to do uh, since then. E even when President Trump either did or promised to roll them back, the, the companies recognized that this was an issue they were going to have to address. And then you fast forward, we've had a lot of technology progress. So things like drones flying over and, and, and cloud computing, all these types of technology developments one of their good results is to better identify and make more possible sort of the identification and measurement. Still not perfect, but we've made a lot of progress of methane and, and, uh, and, and identifying these sources. I also think the companies have done a lot of, under, uh, a lot of work on what it's gonna cost to address these issues. Methane, as you know, is a sellable product. So again, if you're a fossil fuel company and one of your reasons, one of the reasons society needs you it's because you provide valuable energy to the billions of people on Earth. All of our lifestyles are hugely dependent on fossil fuels. No, no one, no one voluntarily wants to buy gasoline or diesel or any of these things. But we all critically, critically need it. And I think that does that. That sometimes gets lost in this climate discussion. But if you're a fossil fuel company, why are you wasting methane? How is that okay? If if, if this is your core. Um, reason for being. If this is what you bring to society, you shouldn't. It it, it, can, it has to be a moral imperative to not waste and flare and venture methane. Um, the understanding of the cost has gotten better. You're going to generate revenues in part to offset some of those costs. But I actually think this is an addressable problem. The, the, and you've got some companies, some of the leading companies, who have volunteered to eliminate flaring by some year and take a bunch of steps to address this. And I think they're all sincere. But when you look at the issue, you're gonna need more of an industry-wide solution. So especially if you don't control all of your infrastructure, so if you share a well with somebody else, um, or more likely you own the well, but you don't own the gathering line or the pipeline, and then it ultimately gets sold into a refinery, the, the regulations are going to be more, co or the, the dealing with methane, I should say, is gonna have to be more cohesive to deal with all the parts of the industry that goes into handling methane with the it, with the midstream and the downstream infrastructure a key component to it not simply the upstream did you flare or not flare that that is probably more addressable by companies and so whether again industry can get together and self-regulate which is the best case scenario or if for any number of reasons maybe it's not in their sort of way of being to do this kind of thing then might you need outside regulation it's going to have to be one or the other. Either the industry is going to have to self-regulate itself or you're going to find that outsiders come in. When I think of all the things that an oil company could do, this to me is overwhelmingly totally within their hands. And we can get to it or not, but I, you know, I personally don't think oil companies have 
too much business investing in renewables and solar when maybe some of the Europeans are doing it and maybe they'll be successful. But but the idea that these big oil companies are going to be tomorrow's energy transition technology leaders, I mean, you just don't see that in any industry. So I'm, I'm very skeptical personally that, um, you know, if they were barely profitable in their core competency, why do why is an investor would you think they're going to be more successful in some brand new area? But that doesn't mean they have no contribution to the climate. The number one thing they can do is eliminate this methane issue. And um, based on studies that others have done, not myself, that could be as much as 0.2 degrees of avoided warming type opportunity, as I think you appreciate said. Methane is much more concentrated in terms of its impact. It's also not as long lasting as CO2. This is an addressable problem. It absolutely should be addressed today. And I, I think there are some reasonable excuses why it didn't happen five or seven years ago. Those excuses don't really exist anymore. Uh, and I think it behooves industry to figure out a way to deal with this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, it, it seems like you, you think we should take at face value the promises that this time it will be different. We will cut down on flaring and, and methane leaks um, and that all that the kind of the, the perception or perhaps the reality that there was some kind of dubious lobbying against things that really ought to have happened, that that was all happened for a very good reason. And we should sort of just move on. No, I, um, if I if I said that, I did not mean to, to say it that strongly. So what I'd say is I think there was reasonable reasons for pushback five to seven years ago. And, and those pushbacks were probably actually accurate. I, I think there's no longer any excuses, though, today to push back. And I don't think industry is doing enough to figure out the methane solution. So I'd say um, I, I believe that they now understand methane's an issue. I believe that amongst some of the companies, there is a desire to fix this issue. I think where, where, where the bridge they have not crossed yet is how do you enforce that? How do you enforce it beyond just the companies that have promised? The, the ones that are making promises, I actually think they are sincere. What I'd say is it's somewhat irrelevant um, from a societal standpoint because you need more than just the companies that are making the promises to address the issue. You need a whole bunch of small and mid-sized companies to do it. You do need it to be global. Um, you know, and so there's, there's, there's sort of a different angle on all this, which is if you're advising the shale industry in the U.S., they should absolutely aspire to have the lowest carbon, lowest methane intensity barrel in the world. The goal should be to produce the, quote, uh, you know, cleanest barrel, for lack of a better term, in the world. Um, and, there's, you know, does that then put pressure on UAE and Qatar, which I think are going to take steps to deal with their own methane issues? We're going to need Iraq to deal with it. We're going to need Kazakhstan, and I know they've got different issues today, but that gates of hell, as it's called, tourist attraction, where uh, I think a, a Soviet, you know, era gas field has been on fire, visible from space, as I understand it. Um, all, all these things are going to have to be addressed. As far as the shale industry goes, uh, the U.S. shale industry, that is going to be one where I don't think the company promises are enough. So while I might believe the companies that have made the promises that they're sincere, my, my point to them would be, it's not enough for you to make these promises. You're gonna to have to figure out ideally a self-regulatory solution. And if you can't do that for whatever reason, then there probably will be outside regulation that would need to come in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and perhaps the madness in all this is that the kind of clean, some of the cleanest and lowest emissions profile barrels are kind of coming out of places like Norway I think so is that right like and that and yet that's kind of seems to be in sort of secular plateau if not decline 
I mean, I, I'm sure the Norwegians do a good job. I don't have their, their specific carbon intensity metrics with me, but I, I can imagine given the nature of those oil fields and given the nature of their infrastructure as well as the environmental regulations, those almost certainly are pretty clean. But I think this is one of the areas where companies should positively compete on, which is, and this is where, again, where I think ESG will be profitable. There's nothing to be gained from overdrilling that leads to massive oversupply and where because you don't have the infrastructure in place, which creates environmental problems, you also don't have the profits. I mean, what is the, if, if neither pr- people who only care about profits, if, if they get hurt and the environment gets hurt, there's no point. <laughs> that, like, there's absolutely no point. Um, I actually think the environment and the profitability of the company are positively correlated. I, I, I can guess, uh, especially with the European audience, they may not see it that way. All I can say is when the companies did not have a sustainable business model for the last decade in shale, we know the profits weren't good. And the kind of things that they would need to do to have better profits, to me, are highly consistent with having less emissions uh, unless other environmental issues. That's not to say there are no costs associated with that, but you get rid of kind of the overdrilling and the inefficiency that comes with not caring about the infrastructure piece. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let, let's go back to the point you raised about European oil majors sort of tilting towards renewables. Um, in fact, there was big news today in, in Scotland. Uh, there was a big leasing round for um, wind farm acreage in the North Sea and companies like Shell, BP and Total Energies were all there like you know, bidding uh, to, to secure access to acreage to build offshore wind farms. And some of them were floating as well, which is um, quite interesting because that's you know, not entirely new, uh, not an entirely mature technology yet. Um, but you, you seem to think that there might be uh, kind of reasons to, to doubt the, the, uh, maybe the profitability of those, the viability of those, the strategic merit of, of going in that direction. Just, just talk around that if you could. Yeah, and, and I mean, so I think there's debate of, how much transition should exist within these companies. And the, the, the part I find most perplexing is, um, it, again, if you're, if you're running one of these companies or on the board, certainly it's a debate and a discussion you need to have in a major way. What is the long-term outlook for crude oil and natural gas demand? What is our ability to secure low-cost resources that will ensure our viability over the long run for however much crude oil is still demanded over the next 10, 20, and 50 years? But then what is our what is our competitive advantage and opportunity set in different areas? And I, I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think the part I push back most on is some notion that they have to do this. Like, I don't, I, like why does the world think, why do some people think it matters what seven or eight large oil companies do or don't do? They're, they're not even impactful to the oil business. I mean, it has been a long time since the super majors were a relevant portion of world oil supply. They're a portion. Um, you can argue today that it's actually the shale oil producers, of which the majors are some of that, but it's really the shale oil producers in aggregate, the hundreds of companies, plus, you know, plus Saudi, plus Russia, maybe Iraq and Iran deserve to be in there. I mean, these are your relevant producers. It's not individually BP or Shell or Chevron or Exxon or Total or any of these guys. And certainly even if you added the five of them up, you get to a reasonably irrelevant portion. So I, I think there's a little bit of a backwards looking approach where people perceive the big majors as being very relevant to the oil business. 
I mean, so they're, they're, they're not especially relevant to the oil business. I don't know why we want them to be relevant to an energy transition business. So we're in a world where we've had zero interest rates and quantitative easing since the great financial crisis. I mean, it's been, it's been almost 15 years. It's a whole separate podcast for different people to discuss whether that's been a good strategy or not. But money has been for free. There is massive, massive amounts of capital available to people pursuing various energy transition initiatives. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know why I need any of these. Now, there may be some logical areas for these companies to invest in. So I think some of the, and again, I'm more familiar with the US companies. I think the carbon capture strategies of Exxon and Oxy, which are prominent today, I think those are logical initiatives for both those companies, whether they'll be successful or not, we shall see. Um, I think renewable fuels, um, for some of the U.S. refiners makes sense. I think in Europe, uh, you have companies like Neste, which has transitioned very well. The most famous one is obviously Dong that became Orsted, I believe is the name. I mean, so there are examples of companies that have transitioned. I think in all those circumstances, they identified a competitive advantage. They demonstrated they could be profitable at it. I, I think this sort of big picture ivory tower, we need big oils to help us transition that I don't understand the psychology behind it. I think especially if your company was not good in the last 10 years at the business they've been in for 150 years, really hard to believe as an investor why you'd want them doing a whole bunch of, bunch of different things going forward. None of that is to say um, you should, we should ignore energy transition. And, and so, I, I do think the outlook for crude oil in particular, it's not as certain as it was for most of my career. I'm personally of view because of disappointments in fuel economy uh, that we see, especially in the U.S., but also in China and the rest of the world, that oil demand will grow through 2030. Some people think it's already peaked or could peak in the next couple of years. I, I personally push back on that. But I also appreciate that the idea that it's only it's going to grow one or two percent for the rest of time is is almost certainly off the table. And so I think. There are many different strategies you could take. It could be a roll-up strategy. It could be a shrink, a sell-yourself type strategy. It could be any number of different things. I, I don't think investing in renewal, I don't think we have to have these companies as going concerns. Maybe they will be, maybe they won't be. Uh, and I think it can vary quite greatly. I, I find Total's strategy kind of on the more interesting side of the Europeans, as I understand it, uh, which is uh, the they're good at gas, they're good at LNG. There's a lot of natural gas in the world. Um, there are markets that need power. And so part of their solution is sort of the gas to power transition strategy. I think that makes sense. Now with natural gas, you absolutely need the methane to be accounted for. It is not okay to say gas is better than coal if you cannot document that methane is addressed. And so when environmentalists say, hey, I don't know about this gas as a transition fuel. Uh, maybe it's not that much better than coal. I, I personally think it is better than coal, but I think um, people like me have to understand that the methane probably wasn't properly accounted for historically, and it's going to need to be better accounted for going forward. But if you can get to where you've addressed the methane side of natural gas, it's got to be better than coal. And we know that there are, what, 4 billion people said around the world who currently use less energy than the typical American or European's refrigerator uses. And, and of those 4 billion, there's 1 billion people who have probably nothing. And we know that there's 2 billion people coming onto Earth over the next, I think it's 50 years, who are mostly gonna join energy poor countries. 
um, those people are all going to want energy. They're absolutely going to want energy. It is, it is a miracle the last 150 years of advancements in our life expectancy of the technology we enjoy, um, of all the things we take for granted. The air is cleaner in the countries that are richer. The air is poorer in the countries that are not as rich. The countries that are richer use a heck of a lot more fossil fuels. That doesn't mean that we now need to use a bunch of fossil fuels going forward. It is more just to ensure people do not forget the link between energy supply, energy security, wealth of a country, and then all the sustainable development goals of life expectancy, health outcomes, air quality, environmental quality, right? And so for the, again, the 4 billion people and the 2 billion people that are gonna come onto the earth, what about them? The idea that we're gonna give them all solar renewables is absurd. I personally drive an electric vehicle. I love EVs. I will personally never, almost certainly never, personally drive an internal combustion vehicle again. I love my Tesla, but you can't possibly tell me that the continent of Africa, India, um, other parts of Southeast Asia are all going to be driving Teslas, right? I mean, so far we've got one company, one, one company that has made a car that anyone wants to buy in mass quantity. I know everyone's trying. I think BMW and Mercedes, we'll see. We should feel optimistic about German manufacturers, I'm sure. I am more skeptical of some of the U.S. manufacturers. People don't want to buy the regular cars. So they're going to be leaders in electric. So, so how, how do you address these four to six billion people, right? And, and so that to me is the role of a traditional oil company. They have to address methane. They have to think in terms of full cycle economics. They have to be profitable. They need to be more diverse in their management teams and the board of directors. The governance absolutely has to continue to improve. Um, so I, I, again, I think ESG is a critical, critical framework, but it's a, it's a philosophy on how to run a company. And I think they, they certainly all need to better embrace that philosophy. And that is their, that is their societal right to exist, um, to, to help yeah. the world meet its energy needs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, I guess just playing devil's advocate, you could say, well, then you, you could say that not having a stake in the energies of the future is a strategic error and that they should be making these investments to at least learn about the technologies, gain exposure, find out how to develop routes to market for electrons rather than molecules, things like that, right? Uh, so I, I think it's entirely possible. I think so I have a framework for sort of energy resilience, which I've started to write about on my on my Substack. And the, you know, the first point is you have to be a profitable company. If you're not a profitable company, there's actually no reason to exist. Uh, the second part is to have essentially a fortress balance sheet. I think uh, while I may think uh, profitability is going to come back, and I may think that these companies are deserving of investment going forward, not everyone may think that. And so. I think you have to be prepared to operate in an environment where capital market access closes to you. It may or may not close. It seems more likely to close in Europe. I don't think it closes in the U.S., and I think, but I think it becomes tougher, and then you can debate the rest of the world. Um, but then the third, fourth, and fifth points all revolve around uh, net zero, scope one, and scope two. Um, I think there's a separate debate on scope three and how much should be allocated to oil companies continuing to be or striving to be a traditional health safety environment leader, but then also having new technologies. And so you got to be a technology leader in terms of finding and developing oil and gas, but I think and also in terms of low carbon technologies. I, th I, th I think the question though would be, should they be doing it themselves? Should they be partnering with others? Um, should they be 
buying technologies that others develop or just simply utilizing it. I mean, for example, if you're supposed to be a technology leader uh, with your cloud infrastructure, I don't think anyone thinks um, Exxon or Chevron should mimic uh, Amazon Web Services or what Microsoft has done, right? So there's always the debate of what do you get from others versus what do you do yourself? I will still be on the skeptical side that oil and gas companies as currently constituted with petroleum engineers and geologists and geophysicists are going to be the leaders in venture capital type areas. It's, it's just not their DNA. That doesn't mean they should ignore it. And so one of the goals should be to have the quote, cleanest barrel in the world. So how, do you, how can you claim, what are the steps you need to do as a company to get to certainly net zero scope one and two by some year? It, it seems to be 2050 that people have picked uh, maybe it can be sooner, maybe it's a little bit later, depending on the company, but you're, you're certainly trying to beat everybody else to having the cleanest barrel in the world. And I don't think you're going to get some, I don't believe in a green premium. I don't think it's about, I can charge 10 cents extra per barrel if it's, I don't think that's practical. I think what it is, is you get a right to exist and you continue to get funding from investors. Hey, this company is selling a net zero scope one and two barrel where they've fully accounted for and they've been transparent on how they are not flaring, venting. They've addressed most of their leaks. There are probably some difficult to address leaks that are not worth the cost and that society's money would be better off spent elsewhere. So the preponderance of the leaks are addressed. Um, I, I, I think that is going to be critical to retaining investor interest, but it could be partnerships. Um, it could, you know, in, in Canada, um, I'm gonna guess the European audience is gonna be particularly um, not in favor of Canadian oil, if I'm guessing correctly. But hey, those guys, have those, they actually have a carbon tax in Canada. I, I never understand this dislike of Canadian oil industry. They've got a carbon capture hub. There's a lot they still need to do to make it successful and to get it off the ground and all that kind of stuff. But they're at least, they're doing things as a consortium. I think that makes more sense than Suncor or Canadian Natural trying to do these things individually. So I think there are gonna be many different strategies. It's early days. Um, I, again, I see. So I, I don't see it as a one size fits all, but I certainly would push back on sort of some sort of mandate or requirement that to quote be a good ESG company, you have to be participating in a major way in an offshore Scottish wind um, auction. And, and maybe that was a good auction or a bad auction. I don't know. I don't analyze it. I love Scotland personally. My son actually goes to school there, so we're we're very pro Scotland as a family. Uh, but but whether any of my oil companies should be investing there. I don't know, and I, I probably fall out on the more skeptical side. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll I'll be having a look at that actually in this week's newsletter, Energy Flux newsletter, that auction, and just having a look at what the oil companies have done. But it's hot off the press today, so I've not had a chance. Um, you, you talk about capital market access there. I just wonder if we should see these activities as almost like an insurance against the, what you described as the kind of creeping death in terms of access to capital markets and the, you know, that, that hammer could fall against pure play fossil fuel companies, but you know, there could certainly be exemptions made for companies that have a, like a certain percentage exposure to non-fossil fuel investment. Yeah. Thank you. It's worth explaining the creeping death reference. Cause I think it's very easy, especially with crude oil and natural gas prices rebounding here and therefore profitability rebounding and, you know, in the U.S., these companies have all announced new dividend growth strategies that investors kind of like. And so while we're still a long way from where we were, we're certainly in a much better spot. The industry is, that is, versus a year ago or any time over the last five years. So it can feel good 
Um, and you, you don't know how political administrations might change, uh, again, sticking with the U.S. focus in 2022 with the midterms and 2024 with the next president. So it might be easy to say, hey, you know what? These crazy Democrats, they're going to get thrown out of power. Uh, we're going to be able to just kind of go back to not worrying about this stuff. And I, I don't think that is a, that, that, that would be a correct, that may, how, it, how it turns out. But that's not certainly how I think the industry should run itself or should be dependent on. I, I think insurance policy is a word you used. I, I might use a slightly different phrasing, which is how, how, do you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you remain an attractive company? How do you remain an attractive investment? I don't think it has to be defensive per se. Um, first thing is you have to be sustainably profitable. If you're not sustainably profitable, there's no point to being a public company, especially to at the larger and midsize. As a small company, you may have a few years as you're growing your business to get to profitability, but you have to be profitable. You don't want to be dependent. So if there's any insurance policy aspect to my spiel, it would be the Fortress balance sheet. Make sure you can be self-funded in case capital market access is taken away. Um, but I think society is demanding that people be climate conscious. Um, and that is going to be a requirement. Years ago, uh, it would have been a different set of environmental issues, right? When we had um, smog in the air, when we had uh, pollution in our rivers, there was all sorts of things companies had to do in the 1970s. Thank goodness uh, for the Clean Air Act um, of, I think it was 1990 or 1992, one of those years, uh, which has had a significant improvement on our overall environment. There are lots of things companies do that we now take for granted. Climate seems like it is going to, it is on track to join that list. So I, th I think as far as, I think it's about playing offense. It's about it's about actually getting to a net zero barrel, scope one and scope two. It's about methane, I think, is an industry solution. I don't think you can do that on your own, but how you partner with low carbon leaders or have a venture capital portfolio, that is all gonna be part of an appealing investment case. It starts with core profitability in your core business the defensive or insurance part is the fortress balance sheet. And then I think the viability part, which maybe is the better way to explain the forward look, it, it, you're, gonna you're gonna have to be net zero at some year. Um, the part that we haven't discussed yet is what is currently called scope three. And that, and that is the part that, um, it's, it's the you know, emissions that come from your barrel, right? And it tends to be 10X scope one and scope two. I think making all companies fully responsible for all of society's emissions is, is insane. Um, so, you know, I live in the United States. We got these Amazon delivery trucks that endlessly circle our neighborhoods, making sure that from one hour ago, when I click the buy now button, it's delivered to my house. And in the worst case, it takes a day, right? Like, like how is that Exxon's fault that Amazon developed this phenomenal delivery infrastructure allows all of us to have instant access to whatever we want. Is, is Shell responsible for the Ford F-150s that are, again, are very popular? So you said one of the reasons I don't think oil demand is going to decline this decade is because the world has completely missed its fuel economy targets. In the U.S., we promised 3 to 4% annual gains. The actual number is 0.3 to 0.4%. We miss it by 90%. And that puts all the heavy lifting on electric vehicles, which I am bullish on. But when you got 1.2 billion cars and light trucks on the road today, and that's growing at some rate, soon to be 2 billion in 10 or 15 years, all the heavy lifting has to come from EVs. Again, all companies have nothing to do with the types of SUVs that Americans and Chinese people, and we'll see about India and Southeast Asia, that they choose to drive the SUVification of the world. 
So when you look at policy, instead of yelling at all companies, why don't we ban SUVs? I mean, seriously, you, you, you could actually de-link oil demand growth from economic growth, which, is, which has always been linked for all of history since it started. You could de-link it with a real fuel economy standard, not the fake ones where Republicans and Democrats fight about who's doing more or who's doing less. And again, these issues exist around the world. When an American sells their car, it gets sold to a lower income person, it might get shipped overseas. These cars don't die. People don't drive in the real world like they do on the labs that determine these fuel economy numbers. There's lots of reasons we miss these, but we don't have to miss them entirely. And so when we talk about scope three, when we talk about society's use for oil, putting all the blame on oil companies is a complete cop-out. It, it, it to me is the example of, I call it virtue signaling, which may be an American term. I think you used the term vanity when we were talking. It is, the, it is um it is a type of insidious policy of let's blame oil companies. What we should blame oil companies for is not being profitable for the last decade and, and having a bad return to their shareholders. And I think we can blame them for, at this point, not proactively addressing methane here in 2022. I think we'll forgive 2014, but not 2022. But, but the idea that they have anything to do with SUVs or Amazon's delivery trucks, or you can't look anywhere, anywhere around that isn't fossil fuel based. That is the society we live in. Now, should they be completely off the hook? I, I, there is an accounting allocation. If ultimately we're not going to be straight with consumers and, and if governments are not going to put in policies that change consumer behavior and, and if the sort of the, the cop out way to do it is to allocate it to industry, which obviously is an indirect tax on consumers, then perhaps some portion of that is attributable to the oil industry. But, but certainly some of it's attributable to auto companies and industrial companies and agricultural companies and all industries everywhere in the world. It is all a society. I, I think there's been a strategy to make fossil fuel companies the equivalent of tobacco. It's a ridiculous strategy. I, all I can say is if you actually care about the climate, I will say that that will not work. I'm saying that as an analyst, not as an advocate, not as an activist. If you are a climate person, that's the kind of person you are. It's all you care about. Not so worried about these other things. Only worried about climate. Making oil the new tobacco has so far not resulted in a decrease in emissions, and it's not on track to. Um, the yeah, yeah, but I, right, you know. So I'm I, sorry. I'll stop there. I, I think that what we're seeing is like there, there are just different motivations, um, and you know, it, it's like it, it, I think it boils down to a question of trust. And there's a sense among a, a lot in the kind of campaign community that um, the oil and gas industry really has breached the trust of uh, of the public, uh, whether perceived or real, through, you know, like I think ExxonMobil's, you know, climate misinformation campaign is the most egregious example, but also some of the lobbying things I've talked about earlier. Um, and, and, and I think there's almost a kind of vengeance to see these companies fail um, uh, perhaps and, and see that as the victory rather than you kind of taking a step back and looking at the system and saying well what's the kind of systemic benefit to society the climate it's more about you know you have to kind of pay almost for for these uh these transgressions i, I think i think you're absolutely correctly raising um kind of what the counter to what i just said would be and all i'd say is um do people want lower emissions or do they not want lower emissions? Uh, you know, so uh, 
there is a lot of misinformation from all sides. Again, it was the motivation to creating super spike. It is absolutely misinformation to say that today we can get rid of all the nuclear plants in Germany and that we can stop natural gas from coming in and that we can have 100% renewable power. That is not truthful, right? This idea that wind and solar are, they're low cost when they're blowing and when the sun is shining. What is the, what is the cost structure for solar and wind when there's no wind and there's no solar, right? So there's plenty of misinformation from everybody. This idea that it's going to cost less to transition is absolutely not accurate. Anyone with any common sense can see that. You're living through it in Europe. People in California live through it. That is not to say we shouldn't care about the climate. The question is how do you provide available, secure, affordable energy for all? And you need to have a smooth transition or people will reject the transition. If people think that you're gonna pick CO, theoretical CO2 reductions, which by the way, aren't happening, versus not powering your home or driving your car, you've gotta be joking. And again, the 4 billion people who use less than our refrigerator, the 2 billion people coming on earth, it is absolute misinformation to say you can meet all those needs with just renewables. At least have a massive nuclear build-out program. Certainly don't retire nukes that exist today. Definitely oil companies should be much more responsible on methane. There's no doubt that if you go back to the 70s, there was misinformation coming out of oil companies about climate change. But again, do you want to address emissions going forward? Uh, this, this idea that they're going to demonize an industry is absurd. It is not resulting in lower emissions. No one wants to buy crude oil or gasoline. No one even, people want to be able to drive though. They want to be able to power their house, power their home. And they're going to need some form of energy. Currently, 83% of it comes from fossil fuels. It's, it's insane to think you're going to transition that within 30 years, right? That, that is complete misinformation that you're feeding the world. How, how can you take stuff away before the new stuff is ready? That is not to say we shouldn't be investing massively in renewables. We should. Absolutely, we should. And we should be building high-speed transmission lines. And we should be working on battery capacity. But how can you take stuff away from people and then make them pay higher energy prices? That is completely immoral. Where's the misinformation there? Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. That that whole thing about like dismantling the old energy system before the new one is ready, I, I just don't think it gets spoken about enough. And uh, not least because, you know, we are going to need coal to fire the furnaces for some time to, you know, uh, to produce polysilicon. Um, and, you know, we're going to need uh, petroleum-derived carbon fibers in wind turbine blades and all, all, all that stuff, which just doesn't really kind of get acknowledged. It's certainly from the those who advocate for a kind of, you know, rapid supply side cuts, it's, um, it, it's a bit short-sighted, yeah. I mean, so just one final point to that said, so, and I started off with this, which is when you look at the current high crude oil prices, I think energy transition is incorrectly being blamed for $86 Brent oil. And I think ESG investors are incorrectly being blamed. So again, there's plenty of misinformation from everybody. Uh, on these topics. And so now people will say, hey, I don't want energy transition. Um, look at, we got $86 oil because of the stupid ESG investors. I don't think that's accurate. I think it's traditional poor profitability and traditional investors who are saying, hey, oil company, don't spend any more money drilling shale wells. Give me the dividends first. And so again, the, but the risk is that when you have these spiking prices, and again, I think for crude oil, I think there will be resistance to energy transition. I think it's gonna be falsely blamed in the case of crude oil for why we might have high oil prices. And I think in Europe, I'm not 
a European energy expert. And before he got on, Seb, I thought Europe's actually one of the most fascinating areas because it seems to be a mix of all this stuff. You have some traditional underinvestment that classically happens after a tough period for the sector that probably has resulted in slower LNG growth. You've got some geopolitical uncertainty around Russia and are they holding back gas or did they just not, you know, is there maturity in Gazprom's fields um, or is, are they uh, concerned about Nord Stream 2? Like there's a whole bunch of geopolitical, but p- potentially just traditional oil and gas stuff. We don't know, or I don't know at least, causing that supply to not be there. Um, it, it's hard to believe as an outsider that Germany retiring nukes has no impact on the high energy prices you guys, you know, Europe's facing today. That's really hard to believe. Um, clearly, there's been frack bans in the UK and France and elsewhere. Now, maybe maybe there wouldn't have been much shale supply anyway. Groningen was wound down, but maybe it deserved to be. I mean, it's a complex issue, right? Uh, and I'm not suggesting there's any one thing to blame. In fact, it's probably all of the above to blame. But I suspect energy transition is going to come under pressure more so than other things because it's something people can point to. So we, we want energy transition. We want more affordable and available secure energy supply with less carbon. And so when you do policies that are in this sort of oil is evil, right? Those fossil fuel companies lied to us in 1976 and maybe they lied to us last year. And therefore I'm going to demonize and I'm going to make them pay. That's ridiculous. People are living longer than they ever have before. Right. The world, the wealthier places have cleaner air and the wealthier places use a heck of a lot more fossil fuels than the poorer places. Right. So it's it's, it's a it's a self-defeating argument. They're going to lose that because people will always take energy availability. You can't no one can ever forget that. And I, I would implore policymakers to remember that, you know, they get to resist all sides. So put in the tough methane regulations to ensure it is safe to use natural gas and that it is definitively better than coal. How could you possibly retire a nuke, which is absolutely zero carbon energy, unless there's a safety issue today, as opposed to a fear mongered safety issue, um, but a real safety issue? How can you retire a nuke when the other stuff's not ready for prime time? And how can you misinform people that we can have 100% of anything or that nothing is 100% lowest cost or highest cost? Even in the Permian Basin, you'd never say the Permian Basin is the low cost basin. You'd say the sweet spots are low cost and the not so sweet spots are kind of medium cost and the third tier acreage is high cost. Nothing in, in an absolute sense anywhere in energy is definitively high cost or low cost. It absolutely depends on a whole bunch of different factors. It's complete misinformation to declare this one thing in its entirety is low cost. And it results in bad policy. And worst of all, it results in the non-affluent paying higher energy costs or worse, not having energy availability. Yeah, well, you've you've opened up like several cans of worms there. We're gonna have to have you on for another podcast, Arjun. That's um, that's quite a way to end it. Uh, Really, really fascinating. Sorry for all the passion, Seb, and I do apologize to your probably European audience for my Americanism. So I'm going to apologize for both those counts. So no, not at all. That's that that was really the kind of I think what I what I took most from this is the the kind of your your, the passion you put into making these arguments. It's uh, it's very compelling. And uh, I, w- I would carry on talking, but I kind of sense that um, yeah. we need to kind of be favorable to people's listening time, too. And um, so just keep in touch and maybe we can get you on soon. Seb, it's a real pleasure to join you. And I really appreciate your perspectives on all this. So thank you for inviting me to speak today. My pleasure. All right. Thank you very much, Arjun. See you again next week, everybody. Bye bye.